Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Jenny Wu, in for Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. President Biden today announced a ban on Russian oil, but he warns record high gas prices could rise even more. We hear lawmakers' reactions to the ban and their ideas for replacing Russian oil. California is leading the way again. This time, it's with record-breaking gas prices. Locals share what's happening and what they can do in response. Civilians are evacuating five Ukrainian cities through humanitarian corridors, and Poland says it's ready to send all of their MiG-29 fighter jets to a U.S. airbase in Germany, giving the U.S. control over them. McDonald's has restaurants all over the world, but for now, Russians will have to go without it. McDonald's is closing all of its restaurants there. Florida is one step away from banning education on gender identity in some classes. A bill dubbed by LGBT activists as the Don't Say Gay bill is headed to the governor's desk. President Biden today announced new sanctions on Russia. The U.S. will stop importing Russian energy. Biden says the ban is going to cause gas prices to rise even further, but that he's trying to minimize the harm here at home. Today, I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. This comes as gas prices are breaking all-time record highs. The national average reached $4.17 today. Biden says the price will keep on rising. And with this action, it's going to go up further. I'm going to do everything I can to minimize Putin's price hike here at home. Russian imports make up a small part of American energy, about 8% last year, of which only 3% was crude oil. In the last two weeks of February, U.S. companies had already stopped importing oil from Russia, according to the Department of Energy. Last week, the U.S. and its partners announced they would release 60 million barrels from joint oil reserves. Also, the president says clean energy is another solution. Loosening environmental regulations or pulling back clean energy investment won't, let me expand, won't, will not lower energy prices for families. But transforming our economy to run on electric vehicles powered by clean energy with tax credits to help American families winterize their homes and use less energy, that will, that will help. The U.S. will be acting alone since our European allies have significantly more reliance on Russian energy. And on Capitol Hill, both parties are supporting the ban on Russian oil. Tonight, the House is expected to pass a legislative package on the matter and take additional action to isolate Russia from the global economy. And today's Molina Wisecup has the latest. Congress moved quickly to stand behind President Biden's ban on Russian oil. The House tonight taking up a bill that supports this ban. Many lawmakers say this is a necessary step to cut off a major money source for Putin. Both parties are supportive. Well, I'm happy that the president has announced the ban on Russian oil imports. We, we import about 200,000 barrels of Russian oil a day. Well, we shouldn't be advancing other uh, countries that don't share our values. Aside from the oil ban, the House's bill takes additional steps that aim to diminish Russia in the global economy. Lawmakers want to impose more sanctions on Russia. The bill reviews Russia's access to the World Trade Organization and could potentially raise tariffs on Russian imports. The bill also wants more sanctions on human rights abusers in Russia. 
The messaging from Democrats and President Biden today is that protecting freedom will cost us at home, warning of even higher energy costs. And we are going to see increased gas prices here in the United States. In Europe, they will see dramatic increases in prices. That's the cost of standing up for freedom. But frankly, we are going to be in a global energy crisis. But some Republicans say Russia is only part of the issue. Oil prices have already risen 60 percent before Putin's invasion. So let me tell you, unless the Biden administration changes its tune at home, things are going to get a whole lot worse. To fill the hole, Biden is looking at importing more oil from Iran, Saudi Arabia and Venezuela, an idea Republicans are scrutinizing. He might finally be coming around to banning Russian oil. But the problem is he wants to replace it by begging other dictators to replace the oil that Putin was providing. Apparently to Democrats and Joe Biden, anywhere is better than the United States of America. While Democrats say the key is to invest more in clean energy. But this just goes to the point that we need to, to, to no longer have our reliance and dependence on oil, and that's why we need to continue to move our policies towards renewable energies. And while both parties are clear-eyed on the fact that we will see consequences as a result of this ban on Russian oil, Republicans and Democrats have different solutions for how to handle these higher energy costs. So we hope and do expect that over the coming weeks, lawmakers will have much discussion over their ideas for lowering these rising energy costs. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Gas prices in the United States are on the rise, and California is leading the charge. Industry professionals and locals alike are watching the prices soar, and everyone is wondering what can be done about it. NTD's Al-Atalina Asoltani has a story. Almost everyone who owns a car has seen what's happening at gas stations, and there has been no shortage of finger-pointing. A AAA spokesman said prices started going up right when the Russia-Ukraine conflict started. As soon as the conflict began and the war uh, started to take place, uh, the cost of crude oil jumped to about $100 per barrel. Uh, over the last week, it's been up to $110 per barrel, and just today it hit about $115 per barrel. $7.25 is the highest price NTD has found in California's Bay Area. But that's not for a novelty cup of coffee. It's for only one gallon of gas. Which is the new record high for the state. Uh, set today. Um, and it, I mean, just a year ago, it was about $3.74. So you can see just how much higher it's gotten, well over $2. And California is leading the country once more, this time in gas prices. Golden State average gas prices hit $5.34 on Tuesday. One county is getting close to $6 per gallon. Mono County is the county with the highest averages, and they're about $5.96 right now. Some Californians are being matter-of-fact about the prices and taking the costs on the chin. God, I, I, it probably is. We're at, what, what five five seventy three right now? It's going to come for sure. Some have decided to drive less, like skipping vacations. Others are looking for alternatives, like public transportation. I bike a lot, so I don't drive too much, but I've definitely been getting gas less. Um, yeah, I try to not drive too much. I've taken the BART before. I have a card. I like it. I think it's a good alternative. With all my tools on my back, <laughs> going down the street with a bike, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> you ever put a little trailer behind the back, the bike and pull the trailer on the bike? <laughs> that one might work. Oh. 
Although California has hit a national high on gas prices, Californians are staying positive. We have to fill up the tank either way, but some are willing to take bikes or even take public transportation. Adelina Soltane, NTD News, California. Russia warns it may shut down a main route for supplying gas to Germany. This comes as the European Commission published plans to cut EU dependency on Russian gas this year by two-thirds. This report comes from NTD's Eddie Atkin. Russia is threatening it could cut off the supply of natural gas to Germany via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Its deputy prime minister said on Monday such an embargo would be justified following Germany's halt to the certification of another pipeline, Nord Stream 2. We have not made this decision yet. Nobody will benefit from this. Although European politicians are pushing us towards this with their statements and accusations against Russia. Nord Stream 1 has been a key strand of Germany's gas supply for about a decade. The pipeline runs from Russia through the Baltic Sea to northeast Germany. The adjacent Nord Stream 2 was completed last year but never went into operation. Novak also warned against banning oil imports from Russia. It is impossible to quickly replace the volume of Russian oil on the European market. It will take more than one year. And also, it will be much more expensive for European consumers. In this scenario, they will be the main victims. The EU is vulnerable to Russian threats, as it gets 45% of its imported gas from Russia, and around a third of its oil and nearly half of its coal. For Putin, the last thing he can do, the last ace up his sleeve, is to turn off the oil and gas taps, which can only be done once. Then it's over. And the reaction from the West will be to search frantically and quickly for alternatives. For example, to import liquefied gas from America. That costs money too, but at least energy security would be a little more assured. And fortunately, spring is coming, which helps us and works against Putin. In response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the EU is now seeking greater independence from Russian energy. At the summit this week, European Union leaders are set to discuss energy security and joint defence. But Germany, the biggest buyer of Russian crude oil, has so far rejected pressure for a ban. I would not advocate for an embargo on Russian imports of fossil fuels. In fact, I would oppose it because by doing so we endanger social cohesion in the country. The West has imposed a host of painful sanctions against the Russian economy, Vladimir Putin, as well as Russian billionaires since the invasion began. But as concerns that targeting Russian oil and gas could drive energy prices even higher. The price of oil recently rose to its highest level in more than 13 years, at over $139 per barrel. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. And British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has said Europe needs to move away from Russian hydrocarbons step by step. He's expected to set out an energy strategy for the UK in the coming days, with Moscow threatening to cut off the West's gas supplies through Nord Stream 1. NTD's Jane Worrell has more from an energy specialist on the impact this might have on Europe. As more countries plan to cut down on reliance on Russian gas, Boris Johnson has said the UK needs a substitute supply with more use of nuclear and renewable energy. So far, the success of, uh, of the West has been in the unity 
that we've shown. I think we are all increasingly united in the view that we've got to move away now uh, from Russian hydrocarbons. We've got to do it together. We've got to make sure that we have substitute uh, and, su and substitute supply, and that's what we're uh, we're working on as well. Dr. Ara Sabadus, a Ukrainian energy specialist, says if Moscow was to only cut Nord Stream 1, compared to Eastern Europe, Western Europe would have better access to gas supplies from elsewhere. There's also a doomsday scenario of all Russian routes being cut. The most worrying scenario would be that gas would be cut through all existing routes, including Nord Stream 1, uh, Ukraine, Turk Stream, uh, the Turk Stream corridor feeding uh, Southeast Europe and Turkey. And now this is the, let's say, the doomsday scenario where, where the gas would be cut. And this would create uh, problems, big problems for Europe. Um, but we also see the possibility that the gas could be cut just on one route, like Nord Stream 1, for example. Um, and it would create problems, but um, the, the, of course, uh, the, the situation would not be as serious, I would say. I mean, serious is, please take it with a pinch of salt, because of the, it's incredibly volatile right now. But um, it would be uh, probably handled or compensated by flows from, from elsewhere. With cold weather expected in the next couple of days, demand for energy may go up. But that probably won't last long with spring around the corner. Jane Worrell, NGD News, London. Humanitarian corridors are finally up and running in Ukraine. Local residents are evacuating from five cities as troops observe a temporary ceasefire. Ukrainian refugees now reach over two million. NTD's Allison Lee has the details. Russia on Tuesday announced a temporary ceasefire in five Ukrainian cities for civilians to evacuate through humanitarian corridors. To safely evacuate civilians from settlements, ceasefire is declared today from 10 o'clock Moscow time, and humanitarian corridors will be open from Kiev, Sheronigov, Sumy, Kharkiv, and Mariupol. Sumy is a city in northeastern Ukraine near the border with Russia. The ceasefire in the city is from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. local time. A convoy of buses is in Sumy, picking up local residents and carrying them to another Ukrainian city in the interior. It was agreed that at 10 o'clock in the morning, the first column should start moving from the city of Sumy. Ukrainian authorities say hours before the convoy reached Sumy, overnight strikes killed 21 people there, including two children. The humanitarian corridor will also carry aid into the city. And in the port of Mariupol, in southeastern Ukraine, residents are waiting for evacuation efforts. <laughs> Mariupol has been without water, heat, sanitary systems, phones and internet access for several days. Bodies have been left uncollected on the streets. Nearly half of the city's 430,000 residents hope to flee. Everything is mined. The ways out of town are being shelled. At the moment, negotiations about leaving in security hasn't been successful. Trust me, I have family at home, and I'm also worried about them. Unfortunately, the maximum security for all of us is to be inside the city, underground, and in the shelters. In an interview with ABC News aired on Monday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky signaled that he's open to a compromise with Russia. 
Russia has demanded that Ukraine give up joining NATO, recognize Crimea as part of Russia, and recognize the independence of the two separatist regions in the east. These pseudo-republics, but we can discuss and find a compromise on how these territories will live on. What is important to me is how the people in those territories are going to live who want to be part of Ukraine. Who in Ukraine will say that they want to have them in? And the Ukrainian military says a second Russian general has been killed in the fighting. They identified him as Major General Vitaly Gerasimov and said he was killed in the fighting around Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv. The United Nations says 474 civilians have been killed in Ukraine as of March 7th. Allison Lee, NTD News. Today, Poland said it would give all of its MiG-29 fighter jets to the U.S., apparently as part of an arrangement that would allow them to be used by Ukraine's military. It wasn't immediately clear how such a transfer might happen. The decision came after a plea on Saturday from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky for more warplanes. Ukrainian pilots are trained to fly Soviet-era fighter jets, such as the MiG-29, and the U.S. has been looking at a proposal under which Poland would supply Soviet-era fighters directly to Ukraine and in return receive F-16s from the U.S. to make up for their loss. The Polish Foreign Ministry said in a statement that it's ready to deliver the jets to the U.S. Ramstein Air Base in Germany, putting the jets at the disposal of the U.S. Poland has said it would not send jets to Ukraine because it's not a direct party to the conflict between Ukraine, which is not a NATO ally, and Russia. Both the U.S. and its NATO allies have rejected Ukraine's calls to enforce a no-fly zone over the country in order to avoid direct military engagement with Russia. Several leaders in the intelligence community testified in front of the House today on the current security threats that America is facing. They focused on the effects of the war between Russia and Ukraine. And today's Jason Perry gives an overview. Thank you all for joining us today. The director of the Central Intelligence Agency, William Burns, said Putin's strategy in Ukraine was based on a quick, decisive victory and that Putin underestimated the Ukrainians' ability to fight back, as well as the effect of sanctions on Russia. Congressman Mike Turner asked Lieutenant General Scott Barrier what the chances are of Russia using nuclear weapons. General Barrier replied by explaining that Putin has invested much in nuclear weapons. I believe that he thinks that gives him uh, an asymmetric advantage, and he's also invested in tactical uh, nuclear weapons. I also believe that when he says something, we should listen very, very carefully and maybe take him at his word. So th this question is the one that analysts are pondering right now, and I, I think we, we uh, really need to do some more work on it. I'm happy to digest this more in the closed session. Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen pointed out that Russia has used its oil as leverage to coerce other countries. And he added that in just this year alone, the U.S. increased its dependency on Russian oil by 40 percent. So what have we been advising the president of? That we should limit that? That we should try to become more energy independent uh, and instead of so reliant on Russia? Are we making those, those assessments? So from an intelligence community perspective, what we do is lay out the picture, and then we let the policy community obviously decide what it is that they take action on. But you guys have laid that picture out. Yes, a yes or no? Certainly energy is something that we have looked deeply okay. at. Okay. I'll back. Thank you. Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy asked if there is now an opening for the U.S. to have productive discussions with the Chinese Communist Party about its intentions in Taiwan. And I do think, as Director Haynes said earlier, 
they've been surprised and unsettled to some extent by what they've seen in Ukraine over the last 12 days, everything from the strength of the Western reaction to the way in which Ukrainians have fiercely resisted to the relatively poor... But you don't see an Russia opening right now for... In Taiwan? Yeah. No, I mean, I think there's an impact on, on the Chinese calculus with regard to Taiwan, which we obviously are going to continue to pay careful attention to. The leaders in the Intelligence Committee were unable to fully answer some questions due to the classified nature of the topics. The hearing continued on in a closed setting to discuss those details with the House Intelligence Committee. Jason Perry, NCD News, New York. Coming up, Florida is one step away from banning education on gender identity in some classes. The governor must now either sign or veto a bill dubbed by LGBT activists as the Don't Say Gay Bill. Their movement is expected to take a hit. And the NFL's reigning MVP finally resolves his status with the Green Bay Packers. We'll have the details of his record-breaking contract and more here on NTD News. Some public schools have openly said they'll gender transition students behind closed doors that parents don't need to know. But Florida's one step away from banning this practice and trans education from some classes. NTD's Miguel Moreno reports. 22 yeas, 17 nays, Mr. President. The Florida Senate has passed the Parental Rights in Education Act on a party-line vote. It'll now go to Governor Ron DeSantis. He's expected to sign the Republican bill, which has been the target of an aggressive smear campaign headed by LGBT activists. They've dubbed it the Don't Say Gay Bill. That's because the bill would ban classroom instructions on sexual orientation or gender identity in kindergarten through third grade. Whether a child is gay or straight, five or six years old, should not be discussing sexual orientation. As a six-year-old, I, along with many of my colleagues, probably thought girls still had cute cooties. And as a third grader or kindergartner, uh, if you ask one of them where a baby comes from, they're probably going to tell you it's the stork. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with letting children hold on to their innocence for just a few more years, because once it's gone, it's gone forever. Opponents say the bill would stigmatize and hurt LGBT students, partly by stifling education on transgenderism. But the bill wouldn't forbid students from speaking about it or from seeking mental help at school. Whether you, whether you disagree with the messaging or not when it comes to people calling it the don't say gay bill, or you can put whatever title behind it all you want, it hurts people. The press has mostly focused on the bill's restriction on sex education, but it would do a lot more if passed. For example, some public schools gender transition their students. This means students could be given a different pronoun at school and or given access to a bathroom of the opposite sex, all without parental consent. The parental rights bill would require schools to notify parents of these changes. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. Florida is doing a great job at keeping the press's attention. The state had already moved away from the CDC's pandemic guidelines, but it's now breaking from the agency's recommendations for the COVID-19 vaccine. NTD's Miguel Moreno has a story. Dr. Joseph Latipo, Florida Surgeon General, unveiled on Monday an upcoming change to their COVID-19 vaccine policy. The Florida Department of Health is going to 
uh, be the first state to officially recommend against the COVID-19 vaccines for healthy children. Latipo said this during a roundtable discussion on COVID-19 hosted by Governor Ron DeSantis. Their policy would break from the vaccine recommendations made by the Centers for Disease Control, known as the CDC. The federal agency encourages everyone eligible, including healthy children, to get vaccinated against COVID-19, billing the vaccines as safe and effective. Some doctors say the benefits of vaccinating healthy children are small. But if you have a healthy child, you're, the chances of that child dying are incredibly low. It's essentially close to zero, if not actually zero. Freeman advises parents to consider whether risking their child to side effects like headaches and muscle pains is worth it. Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines have also been associated with heart inflammation, but the CDC says this is rarely reported. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. Leaders of the truck convoys that drove across the nation are meeting with lawmakers in Washington, D.C. today. What are they saying as they circle the D.C. Beltway for the third straight day? NTD's Iris Tao has more. I talk to kids all the time, these teenagers, as I've been traveling through the country, and they're like, our, our, our high school is stolen. The truckers are here, and so are those supporting them, including some on Capitol Hill. People's convoy, they're trying to let the American people understand what has happened to them. Leaders of the truck convoys today met with Senators Ted Cruz and Ron Johnson, followed by a meeting with several Republican representatives. Well, the fact that we have a chance to be here and have a voice, I respect three of you for letting that happen. They talked about a variety of issues, ranging from lifting remaining mandates to ending the state of emergency to dealing with soaring energy prices. Stop it. <clears throat> Just don't sign anything, vote no on everything until they start waking up and give our rights back. We talked to one of them who said he drove all the way from Arizona, more than 2,000 miles. Coming all the way here to D.C., what is one message that you want to present to the lawmakers here? I want them to know that whether we're unvaccinated or vaccinated, whether we drive trucks or we love this country, we are united. As the meeting is taking place right behind me inside this house office building, the convoy of trucks continue to make loops around the nation's capital. And some truckers told us today that they're not going anywhere until their voices are heard and all mandates are lifted. It really means a lot because their voices represent most Americans. And the things they said here today is how the rest of America feels. Own communities, their own counties. And right outside the Capitol building today, another group, Moms for America, gathered to voice support for the truckers. And this has been something that has been right in our backyard, in our own homes with our own children, from the mask mandates to the comprehensive sex education. And lawmakers stood alongside them. And we need to get back to a normal life in this country. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. NFL star Aaron Rodgers has agreed to return to the Packers. The reigning MVP will sign a four-year, $200 million contract to stay with Green Bay, ending a two-year standoff with the team. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Just two years ago, Aaron Rodgers' long-term future in Green Bay was murky at best. Two seasons and two MVP awards later, the 38-year-old just signed the largest per-year salary contract in NFL history to remain a Packer. The deal includes $153 million in guaranteed money, 
and not only ensures he retires from the only team he's ever known, it actually lowers his cap number of more than $46 million for the salary cap-strapped Packers. Green Bay was over the upcoming salary cap by more than $26 million before signing Rodgers. His new deal allows the team greater flexibility in re-signing all-pro receiver Devontae Adams, who they placed a franchise tag of about $20 million on, on Tuesday just before the deadline. It also ends a two-year saga where Rodgers' future with the team was in doubt. In the 2020 draft, the Packers traded up in the first round to select quarterback Jordan Love from Utah State. The move seemed to signal an upcoming end to Rodgers' time in Green Bay and was largely seen as fracturing his relationship with front office. But it also seemed to light a fire under Rodgers, who went out in 2020 and set career highs in touchdowns and completion percentage en route to his third overall MVP award. The following offseason, Rodgers reportedly said he wanted out of Green Bay, skipped the organized team activities and mandatory minicamp before reporting for the start of preseason practices. After struggling in the regular season opener, Rodgers, though, led the Packers back to another division title while winning his second straight MVP award. While Rodgers is staying put in Green Bay, Seattle has agreed to trade nine-time Pro Bowl quarterback Russell Wilson to Denver for a package that is believed to include multiple first-round picks plus additional picks and players, according to multiple sources. The deal gives Denver a much-needed star quarterback to pair with a stifling defense. Meanwhile, the Seahawks receive a package that helps them start over after a disappointing 7-10 season. Wilson has been one of the most consistent quarterbacks in the league since being a third-round pick of Seattle in 2012. Now 33 years old, Wilson led the Seahawks to a Super Bowl title in just his second season and to a winning record in each of his first nine seasons in the league. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. Coming up, the FBI in Los Angeles are on the hunt again for another bank robber. This time, the thief is known for wearing black and white sneakers. And a California police officer who beat a suspect with a baton is acquitted on charges of assault and battery. The officer claimed he was protecting his partner when the suspect became violent. That and more here on NTD News. Last month, the FBI's Los Angeles division had been searching for and recently arrested a prolific bank robber. Now the agency is again on the hunt for another one. Authorities say the thief always wears a pair of black and white sneakers. The FBI is on the hunt for a man known as the black and white sneaker bandit. Authorities attribute at least eight bank robberies in Orange County in recent months to the thief. Photos published on FBI Los Angeles Twitter page show the bandit caught on camera in multiple occurrences, wearing a dark-colored shirt, jeans, and either a baseball cap or a beanie. While his appearance slightly changed in each incident, he consistently wore a pair of black sneakers with white soles. Some Twitter comments speculate it could be two different individuals, judging by the build and appearance of the suspect in the photos. According to the FBI, the unidentified man is connected to a series of robberies between October 2021 and January 2022 in the cities of Fullerton, Huntington Beach, and Costa Mesa. Anyone with knowledge of the suspect's identity is urged to call the FBI Los Angeles Division. A San Francisco police officer was found not guilty for beating a man with a baton in 2019. It's believed to be the city's first trial against an officer for excessive force allegations while on duty. 
The ruling comes amid a controversial standoff between the SFPD and the district attorney, who's facing a recall. NTD's Eileen Eng reports. On Monday, a jury found a San Francisco police officer, Terrence Stangle, not guilty of three charges of assault and battery. He faced the charges after striking Dakari Spears with his baton several times, breaking his wrist and leg. The jury deadlocked on the fourth charge of unlawfully beating Spears under color of authority. The trial began in January this year, and deliberation lasted four days. I think it gives a lot of officers hope, actually. Um, I know a lot of officers were watching to see how this case was going to turn out. Um, it's A lot were very worried that if it went the other way and he was convicted, that a lot of the training that we've already done and completed and the way we go about doing police work in general would have been vastly different. I and mean, it would almost been like we wouldn't know where to proceed. In an email statement to NTD, Police Chief William Scott said he was confident in the judicial system since the beginning of the case. He said the court gave Officer Stangle the same fair treatment and due process as any other defendant and is grateful for their civic service. Scott made it clear that the police must be held accountable if their use of force violates laws or rights and that police are not above the law. According to our view and according to the expert that was used from the police department, uh, Officer Stangle acted within his training. In December 2020, the district attorney, Chesa Boudin's office, filed multiple felony assault charges against Stangle for the use of force incident. After the verdict, Boudin's office stated they respect the jury process even though they are disappointed with the outcome. He is committed to holding those doing harm accountable regardless of their occupation. In October 2019, Stangle and his partner were responding to 911 calls about a black man choking and dragging a black woman near Fisherman's Wharf. During the struggle, Stangle helped detain Spears by beating with his baton several times. Spears was handcuffed and cited for delaying a peace officer. Stangle testified that he was trying to protect his partner, who was not charged, from the violent man. During the trial, the police chief ended an argument that allows the district attorney's office to investigate police shootings and excessive use of force and in-custody deaths. He cited the office's impartiality. It was designed to restore public trust in the independence of investigations into those use of force. Both agreed to let the agreement stand for another two months after the state attorney general's office intervened. The DA is facing a recall in June. Eileen Ang, NTD News, California. Coming up, several Russian oligarchs close to Putin are facing sanctions in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We look at who they are and what assets could or have been seized. And more than two-thirds of China's provinces and municipalities have reported COVID-19 cases this month. The report marks a hit for Beijing's zero-case policy, which looks to completely eradicate infection cases. More details on that in just a minute, here on NTD News. The UK, the US and the EU have responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine with tough shit sanctions. Some billionaire businessmen with close ties to President Putin are feeling the effects with their assets frozen, yachts seized and travels banned. Here's NTD's Eddie Atkin with the latest about the men said to be Putin's cronies. Last week, the British government announced a full asset freeze and travel ban on two Russian oligarchs, Alisher Usmanov and Igor Shuvalov. The government said Alisher Usmanov has significant interests in English football clubs Arsenal and Everton. He owns Beechwood House in Highgate, 
worth an estimated forty-eight million pounds, and the sixteenth-century Sutton Palace estate in Surrey. He is the founder of USM Holdings, which works in sectors including extractives and telecoms. Usmanov was born in Uzbekistan while it was still part of the Soviet Union, and his net worth is estimated to be £14 billion. He is also sanctioned by the US and EU, and his £450 million luxury yacht has been seized by German authorities. Igor Shuvalov used to be Russia's first deputy prime minister and government chief of staff. He also has twice worked as an aide to Vladimir Putin. He has been chair of the management board of VEB since 2018, one of the banks recently subjected to a full asset freeze in the UK. Shuvalov's assets in the UK include two luxury apartments in central London worth an estimated £11 million. The UK government said he is a core part of Putin's inner circle and headed up Russia's bid for the 2018 Football World Cup. We are absolutely determined to sanction Russian oligarchs. We've already sanctioned over 100 individuals and organisations. Uh, we've got a further list we are working through. We Another oligarch with interest in the UK is Roman Abramovich, who became well known because of his success of his football club, Chelsea FC. He has not been sanctioned, but last week he announced deciding to sell Chelsea for £3 billion. His mansion in London's Kensington Palace Gardens is also reportedly up for sale. 55-year-old Abramovich is estimated to be worth £10 billion and made his fortune during Boris Yeltsin's presidency. He strongly denies having close ties to Putin. The US have imposed sanctions on two oligarchs in the Russian energy section, including Igor Sechin, head of energy giant Rosneft, and Alexei Miller, head of the state-owned energy corporation Gazprom. Sechin is said to be Putin's most trusted and closest advisor and a personal friend. He was deputy prime minister when Putin was prime minister. He is widely believed to have been in the much-feared intelligence service, the KGB, during the time of the Soviet Union. He is also sanctioned by the EU, and French customs have seized a yacht belonging to him. Miller is another old friend of Putin's and has run Gazprom since 2001. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. McDonald's is temporarily closing all 850 of its restaurants in Russia. That's in response to the country's invasion of Ukraine. McDonald's president and CEO Chris Kimkinski says closing all restaurants in Russia is the right thing to do for now. The burger giant said it will continue paying its over 60,000 employees in Russia. McDonald's has also temporarily closed over 100 restaurants in Ukraine and continues to pay those employees. The company could take a big financial hit because of the closures. Its restaurants in Russia and Ukraine account for almost 10 percent of its annual revenue. That's around $2 billion. Pressure has been mounting for McDonald's and other companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi to pull out of Russia. Many corporations have ceased operations in Russia in protest of the Ukraine invasion. Kim Kensey says it's impossible to know when the company will be able to reopen its stores. In Ukraine, at a warehouse on the outskirts of Lviv, supplies are prepared for distribution. Two generators arrived yesterday, along with 36 tons of medical materials. It'll be sent to health facilities in areas with electricity issues. 
Meanwhile, an emergency medical team sets up a field hospital in an underground car park. This report comes from NTD's Joy Dugid. Humanitarian aid and medical supplies are being distributed in Ukraine as the invasion continues to displace more people. With the war nearing its third week, the World Health Organization has provided two generators to help health facilities in areas with electricity issues. Other supplies are being prepared at a warehouse on the outskirts of the city of Lviv. Already in the first few days, uh, we brought uh, 36 metric tons of medical material mainly uh, needed to treat wounded people and perform surgeries. Uh, as well, there were some uh, essential medicines uh, for other uh, sort of diseases. The teams are coordinating with the Ministry of Health to define exact needs, as medical supplies are in high demand and adequate supplies are needed. More targeted deliveries are expected in the coming days and weeks. Elsewhere, an emergency medical team from the charity Samaritan's Purse, also a WHO partner, set up a field hospital in a parking lot to take pressure off the city's health services. It's uh, got 50 to 70 bed capacity, an inpatient capacity, a trauma room, a triage, uh, four wards, two male, two female wards, and then we have four ICU beds as well as two operating room theatres. Medical supplies and staffing remain the most pressing issues. The field hospital is expected to be able to treat over 100 to 200 patients a day. Joy Dugid, NTD News. Over 20 Chinese provinces and municipalities have reported COVID-19 cases this month. But Beijing is still holding firm to its zero cases policy, using mass testing and strict quarantine rules to try and stomp out the spread. Here's NTD's Tiffany Meyer with China in Focus for more details. The Chinese Communist Party, or CCP virus, is making the rounds across China. According to official data, 24 provinces or municipalities in the country have reported confirmed cases this month. Beijing has held firm to its so-called zero-case policy. It seeks to completely eradicate all CCP virus cases through mass testing its residents to quickly detect new infections and stringent lockdown measures to halt the spread. The policy differs from most other nations, which have largely adopted to living with the virus in low numbers. On Monday, China reported just over 300 cases, though NTD cannot independently verify that figure due to the Chinese regime's tight control over what information is released and its history of underreporting virus cases. That number may be much higher in reality. In southern China's Shenzhen city, residents must get tested for the CCP virus daily. Anyone who refuses is barred from going to work the next day. On top of that, refusing a test prompts an automatic yellow health code reading. The digital codes are stored on smartphones and are part of China's contact tracing program. A yellow reading indicates that a person may be at risk of infection and means its holder will be blocked from riding public transportation, entering grocery stores or visiting other public spaces. Shenzhen City is one of Hong Kong's closest neighbors. And right now, Hong Kong is facing an unprecedented pandemic surge. Tens of thousands of people are testing positive daily, while the daily death toll sits in the hundreds. Other regions in China are coping with similar issues. Some parts of Shanghai are now under lockdown. Students from one elementary school plus their parents were gathered up and taken to a quarantine center 
after just one parent tested positive for the infection. A resident living close to the school told us more about the situation. They explained that locals don't dare to leave their homes now because if anyone shows symptoms of illness, even just the common cold, they'll be taken to quarantine. Coming up, an experience some say they'll never forget. Shen Yun is performing to packed theaters in the heart of London. And we take a look at the lost painting of an Italian Baroque master. It's on display in a Roman exhibition that explores the themes of the sacred and natural in his works. Stay tuned for more in just a moment. theaters in the heart of London. For two weeks, people from all walks of life found joy and tranquility at a classical Chinese dance performance called Shen Yun. Some say it's an experience they'll never forget. It's a magnificent show with the most incredible dancing and acrobatics. And it really brings the culture to life in a very powerful way. I think it's fantastic. Uh, I love the dancing, I love the colours. The colours are absolutely beautiful. The storytelling is lovely. And I congratulate all the cast on all the work they're doing. Shen Yun Performing Arts has been touring the United Kingdom for two weeks. The show attracts audiences from all walks of life. Absolutely stunning. It was the embodiment of perfection. It was very, you know, it was a very moving spiritual experience. It's magical. The movement that they have, and the way they have connected with the backdrop with all these pictures, and the way they kind of connect both of them together, you think this is not real. Really amazing, very inspiring, forthcoming kind of almost triumphant. It's not like anything I've seen before and I will remember it for the rest of my life. Shen Yun uses dance to bring to life the stories and inner essence of China's 5,000-year-old culture. Their, their kindness and their enthusiasm and the, the meditation and the spirit seems to shine through. That has a certain sense of spirituality and emotional calmness that I think only something like meditation could give you because you never feel for a moment that they are out of control or not in completely complete understanding of their bodies and what they can add to the add to the performance. But this rich history has been under attack by the communist regime, which has systematically destroyed, distorted, and supplanted the traditional culture with its own. So Shen Yun's mission is to revive the culture before communism. So I'm fascinated that um, Shen Yun um, has those principles about freedom of speech about deities, about uh, religion, and that freedom of speech is to be cherished because it is the higher calling in all of life. Shen Yun will continue perform in London until March 13th. NTD News, London, UK. The war in Ukraine has shaken Brighton Beach. It's a neighborhood where residents from Russia and other former Soviet Union countries have been living side by side for decades, earning it the nickname Little Odessa. The war in Ukraine and the unfolding humanitarian crisis has sent shockwaves around the world. And in New York's Brighton Beach neighborhood, where Russians and Ukrainians have lived side by side for decades along with others from the former Soviet Union, the invasion has stirred up complicated emotions. It's heartbreaking. 
and it's one story when you see it in the news, and the other story when you get pictures through Messenger or WhatsApp from your friends hiding in basements. It's a tragedy. Many Ukrainians living in the area nicknamed Little Odessa agree the community has really come together in a show of support. Ukrainian flags hang from many businesses and donation drives in support of Ukrainians have sprung up across the neighborhood and beyond. This local beauty salon owner teared up describing how donations were coming not just from Ukrainians, but from Russians, Georgians, Uzbeks and more. Volunteers are also collecting donations at Brighton Beach's Guardian Angel Roman Catholic Church. The plan is to ship much-needed supplies to contacts in Poland who can help get the packages into Ukraine. One volunteer said she prays for loved ones there. It's hard for people like me who has no tears left to express the feelings anymore. It just, that's the only way we can express it by helping and do like something as a diaspora or something like that. Another member of the church, who was born in Ukraine and spent most of her life in Moscow, lamented all the suffering. It's terrible. I don't know why. Nobody knows. But remember, remember, love your neighbors like yourself. The lost painting of an Italian Baroque master is on display in a Roman exhibition. The collection explores the themes of the sacred and natural in his works. Here's NTD's Andrew Thomas with the details. Danza Campestre by Italian Baroque master Guido Reni was returned to Rome last year. It's the focus of an exhibition dedicated to the artist at the Galleria Borghese. Guido Reni in Rome, Nature and Devotion, opened March 1st. It comes more than 30 years after the last exhibition in Italy dedicated to him. Painted around 1605, it was part of Cardinal Scipione Borghese's famous art collection. Guido Reni's country dance painting left the Borghese collection at the end of 19th century, and the last news we had of it was that it was sold in the rooms of Palazzo Borghese in Cambor Mazio. It then returned to the international art market a few years ago and immediately attracted the attention of the Borghese Gallery, and it was purchased and returned here in December 2020. The exhibition reconstructs the artist's early years in Rome, his study of antiquity and the Renaissance, and his admiration of the paintings of Caravaggio. What does it mean? Vincenzo Giustiniani, who is a very important source for the 1600s, spoke of Guido Reni in relation to two aspects. First, at the most perfect way of painting, because he considered him to be at the top of the painters of his time because he painted accordingly to the matter of the early Florentine painters, with the study of the past, but with the modern example of natural elements, and therefore also with an extraordinary relationship to reality. Rennie's experience strongly influenced his work as shown by a crucifixion of St. Peter and David with the head of Goliath. His painting becomes stronger, the figures become sculptural and monumental, not only because he was influenced by Carol Vajero, but also because of the statues from which he draws a lot of inspiration. However, Rennie has his own style that he never abandons, in particular the palette of light and bright colors and the sense of balance and measure that makes him an absolutely classist painter. Guido Rennie arrived in Rome around 1601 at the age of 26. Already enjoying a flourishing career in his home region, he had traveled there in search of new opportunities.
Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Chenny Wu.